Well, thank you very much for being here. So my name is Christina Littlefield. Um, I am an associate professor here at Pepperdine. I teach in both journalism and religion, essentially professional journalist, but church historian uh, is my main thing that I do. Uh, and today we're talking about Walter Rauschenbusch um, and how he went from really an evangelical pietism to social justice warrior. And he is, my specialty as a church historian is um, British and American Christianities, and particularly I zone in on what I call the evangelical wing of the earlier social gospel. Um, so late 19th, uh, early 20th century, basically from 1870 till uh, early 1920s is the time period that I focus on. Uh, and Rauschenbusch, of course, is a big uh, player in that. Now, how many of you would ha have heard of him? Okay, a couple. How many of you have heard of this social gospel? Okay, a few more. How many of you have heard negative things about the social gospel? Okay, so like, what have we, what have we heard? What are, what are our impressions of the social gospel? Your impressions are what you've heard from others. No one will take it as your own personal belief. What have we heard? Curious. Well, that it promotes some kind of liberal agenda, <coughs> even sympathetic to communistic theory, yeah. and does not preach the gospel that we would believe should be preached. Okay. Others have heard this. It's a pretty common stereotype about it. It's not fair or accurate. I'll always stress that. Uh, but it's a pretty common stereotype, and we can kind of talk about what is it, what is it about. So, Walter Rauschenbusch, I would argue, is the leading, leading theologian of the social of gospel, what gets called the social gospel. Um, he's tremendously important. Um, so born right during the American Civil War, dies during World War I, doesn't actually get to see the end of it, dies of cancer, um, uh, and is immensely, immensely important to this movement. So we're going to talk more about him. Um, but I, first I want to say, like, what is the social gospel? Let's, let's put him in context. What is this? Then we'll look at his journey. Uh, we'll look deeper as much as we have time into his kingdom theology. Um, and then wrestle with this. And I actually encourage you, I say questions at the end, but interrupt at any time. I would rather this whole presentation be question and answer than me presenting information at you. Um, but what the heck is the social gospel? <laughs> let's, let's talk about that first. Um, now, and where do these negative impressions come from? So these negative impressions come because there was some of the social gospel, particularly out of Germany, uh, Adolf von Harnock, it would be a, a number one, who did um, take on such a liberal theology that he denied the resurrection uh, of Christ, and then wondered why his own father said he couldn't call himself a Christian and why no one would let him have a pastoral ship. Right? No one would let him actually be a pastor because his theology was just defunct, essentially. Um, so, so people look at the social gospel and they think people like Harnack, right? <coughs> or they think where the social gospel goes in the 1930s, when it essentially um, post-scopes monkey trial, when more progressive evangelicals and more conservative evangelicals stop talking to each other, and the conservatives go off, take their ball, and go elsewhere. And the progressives are left to their own devices. And they do grow more and more um, liberal in some of their thinking, because they're not forced to communicate with each other anymore. Um, so a lot of our impression 
of what the social gospel is actually even comes from um, Richard Niebuhr. You might know his uh, brother Reinhold a little bit from, uh, uh, better, uh, where he talks about the social gospel being, you know, a Christ without a cross is, is one of the, the lines in this famous quote. Uh, on the very next page, he exempts all of these earlier thinkers, right? He himself is judging the social gospel based on what he, how he um, encountered the social gospel and embraced when uh, he was a young man in the 1930s. So a lot of it comes from people taking a quote out of context and not reading even the next page of that historical analysis. Um, but Stanley Hauerwas, um, in a 2007 um, centennial edition of Rauschenbusch's famous Christianity and Social Crisis argues that after Rauschenbusch there's no gospel that is not the social gospel. There's no gospel that doesn't have to take in uh, to consideration his ideas of what the kingdom means, uh, his ideas of a holistic gospel that uh, cares about social sins as much as individual sins. Um, and so this is, he, he's tremendously important. And we can see Rauschenbusch um, in the civil rights era. We can see him in Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology. We can see him in even a lot of statements Barack Obama directly made when he was president. He was actually quoting Rauschenbusch sometimes. Um, so he definitely was, uh, has been more embraced by those on the political left, which also then means it's boundary policing. We can't engage uh, from those on the political right. So what is the social gospel, though? Um, so the social gospel is a late 19th century movement. It is not just a US movement. It actually starts in England first, uh, then is over in Germany, and then comes to the United States. Um, all reaction to the industrial era. And their goal um, was evangelistic. They wanted to apply the teaching of Jesus to every aspect of life and really show that Christianity, uh, I always argue, vindicate Christianity, show that Christianity could deal with the new problems of the industrial age. Um, so it was a transnational, uh, uh, transatlantic movement, primarily among Protestants, but there is Roman Catholic wings that will pick up a lot of their thought. Um, and they're reacting to urbanization primarily, massive shift, um, even though this is, is still growing, the shift from people living in cities over these 30 years is massive. Um, so cities are growing faster than city planners can account or handle the growth, uh, leads to a lot of problems. And of course, immigration is coming in, um, particularly to the US, but all of these countries are dealing with um, uh, immigrant questions. Uh, and um, for many of the social gospel, they are uh, very proud of their um, Anglo-Saxon heritage. Even Rauschenbusch, who of course is German heritage, makes it the Anglo-Teutonic heritage. And so there's a lot of suspicion of some of these immigrants coming in are no longer um, Scot Scottish Presbyterians or they're no longer uh, uh, Protestant Germans, but now they are um, Italian Catholics and they're Polish uh, Catholics and they're Russian Jews. And so the kind of people coming into the country is shifting and this is also impacting them. So they see um, this is a response to many threats to a Christian America. All of these guys would be what today would be called Christian nationalists. They very much believe that God had chosen America for a special mission. In fact, all their, my, my first book is actually called Chosen Nations. All of their reform book 
uh, sorry, reform work is inspired by the idea of like, we have a mission to the world. If we're going to evangelize the world, we better get our own house right. We better reform our own house first. But historical criticism is a threat that Christians are dealing with. How do we answer this? Uh, Darwin and evolution is a threat. How do we answer this? Notice I separate Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism here as a threat that they're wrestling with. And I see these as separate because some of the Christians in this time period wrestling with modernity are going to make peace with evolution, but not make peace with Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism. Right? This is the idea that it's survival of the fittest, and that's how the whole social structures should be set up. So Christians across the political spectrum are going to go, um, no, <laughs> this is not okay uh, with our faith. Um, but these issues, industrialization, urbanization, immigration, are really driving um, the social gospel. And this is kind of the theology that they develop. This is mostly coming out of an English uh, thinker, uh, Frederick Denison Morris. Um, writing in uh, the 1840s, um, and really in response to the Chartist Revolution. So the Chartist Revolution was one of the democratic reform movements that swept across Europe in the late 1840s, uh, where uh, people were fighting for the right to vote, right? In England, only property holders had the right to vote, not all men. Uh, so they were fighting for all men to have the right to vote. And Morris is very conservatively going, not yet, <laughs> but, how do we work for your greater good, right? So he, he's, he's not a reactionary. He's actually pushing back against reactionary elements and trying to find a middle way. But he really <coughs> develops this theology that becomes uh, even more developed in Rauschenbusch's work. Um, so all of these guys come from multiple different denominations, but they're all really embracing the idea, the Calvinist idea, I know uncomfortable for those of us in the Church of Christ, that God is sovereign over all that God is in control. Uh, that, so the fatherhood of God, we're all accountable to. We are all accountable to following God's will. And there's no um, separation of that. Right? They were pushing back against the materialism that said it didn't matter what you did in your business Monday through Saturday as long as you went to church on Sunday. And they're like, no, God is sovereign over Monday through Saturday too. Um, they're also really stressing, and yes, in this male language, the brotherhood of men, right? That we are all our brother's keeper, we're responsible for one another, uh, we must care for all. This is often reduced sometimes to called fog bomb, the, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of men. If you've ever been uh, to Pepperdine's Songfest, the song we've seen at the very end of Songfest has fog bomb in it. Right? Look, 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 you look up those lyrics if you don't believe me. It's motivated by the social gospel. They also very much stressed, in more of an Eastern Orthodox way, the living Christ. Now, none of the guys I study really question the atonement or the real death and resurrection of Christ. They're still Orthodox in those ways. They're Trinitarian. They're Orthodox in those ways. But they are pushing more, let's focus less on the atonement and that Christ died for our sins and think about how Christ lived and how Christ uh, lived incarnationally into the world, came to uh, the weakest amongst us and ministered, and let's do that. Let's live that out. 
Uh, and throughout, they are working toward what they see as the kingdom of God, very much rooted in Old Testament Hebrew prophets as well as what Jesus himself says. Any questions so far? Let me just pause. So when you say working towards the kingdom of God, are you saying they saw it as a future thing? Oh, it's very both now and future. Never capable under solely human power. It requires the power of God, but something that we nonetheless must partner with God on. So these guys are what we would call post-millennialists. They definitely believe humans can work and partner with God. But there's a really strong tension there. Some post-millennialists like, get to the point where they don't think they need God at all. right? We don't need him. We're going to do it solely by human effort. They never get to this point. Definitely not Rosh and Bush. Uh, the kingdom is always but coming. It is always just out of our grasp. But we must work toward it. Um, as opposed to premillennialists, which many conservatives were turning. And a lot of these terms are even problematic because they develop more in late 19th, early 20th century. Like, alongside the social gospel, some of these terms. But premillennialists believe this world is going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing we can do but to save as many souls as we can before the ship goes down. Right? We can't usher in the millennium. Um, and so these are, these are common terms in the historiography <coughs> that are often applied um, to people who wouldn't have even known these terms. <laughs> right? So like, we think of Jonathan Edwards, a famous American theologian, as post-millennialist, but that, that term didn't exist for like 200 more years. Right? So, but we're going back and, oh, well, his thinking lends itself to this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Other questions? So, so this is their favorite verses. Essentially, the parable of the sheep and goats, Matthew 25. I'm sure this crowd knows it well. But essentially, as they live incarnationally, what did you do for the least of these? Um, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Um, and so uh, many of their social reform efforts will start here. <laughs> um, feeding the hungry, uh, the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, so a lot of work to assimilate immigrants in, um, some prison ministries, um, but mostly trying to make um, life more stable for those in the urban cities. Okay. So, and here's Rauschenbusch's uh, definition of the kingdom, right? For him, the kingdom of God would be humanity organized according to the will of God. Um, and for him, because Christ revealed the divine worth of life and personality, um, and uh, he's, he's definitely shaped by American individualism, uh, and since his salvation seeks the restoration and fulfillment of even the least, it follows that the kingdom of God at every stage of human development tends toward a social order which will best guarantee to all personalities their freest and highest development. So he believed that ultimately when God came, when Christ came back, this would end up looking like a theocracy. But until then, um, Christians had to work democratically um, with uh, full protection of the individual will and, and, and such um, to work toward a social order that would let people flourish, that would let people thrive. And for him, this started with a day off in seven and an eight-hour work day and um, uh, no tainted milk, right? There was a big scandal in New York at the time that he would have been, been living of 
people selling chalk water as milk and it was killing babies, right? These are the kind of things that he uh, is working for. So, but how did he get there? Oh, I, I'm skipping a slide. One thing I know is like a lot of Rachel Mush's writing uh, talks about Maslow's hierarchy of needs before Maslow's hierarchy of needs was a real thing, right? But if people don't have their basic needs met, they won't be able to rise up this ladder. So people won't be able to really think about their relationship with Christ and pursue discipleship if they're not sure um, where they're going to sleep at night or how they're going to keep a roof over their family's heads. So Christians should help make these basic things happen so we can move people up that ladder towards fuller self-actualization. So let's talk about Rauschenbusch himself. Um, he and I share a birthday. I have a weird kinship to him for that. Obviously not 1861, <laughs> but October 1st. So here's Walter Rauschenbusch. So Rauschenbusch is... Uh, second generation German-American. His father immigrated um, in 1848. There's a lot of speculation of wh whether he was part of 1848 uh, revolutions happening in Germany that were very strongly put down by the uh, Prussian government at the time. Germany didn't actually exist as a country in the way we think of it uh, until 1870. Um, where he uh, came from a long line of Lutheran ministers, seven Lutheran ministers in a row. He comes to America and he converts to the Northern Baptists. Remember, the Baptists had divided during the Civil War into Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. Today we think of the Northern Baptists as now called the American Baptists, right? They got rid of the Northern uh, title, but only decades later. Um, and his family is very attracted to, uh, they come from a pietist family and they're very attracted to the idea of, of renewal and rebirth that they find in the Baptists, to the idea of adult conversion and adult baptism, and particularly to the democratic nature, the, the stress um, on uh, the individual um, that Baptists would have afforded in this time. Um, the, the couple were not a love match. <laughs> uh, more more they, they met and married in the US because they were both German Baptists. Um, so Rauschenbusch's childhood is strained. Uh, his parents actually eventually um, separate. Um, but his father was head of the German uh, Baptist department at Rochester Theological Seminary. And so family was raised by very strict uh, uh, rules um, with a strong focus on avoiding any kind of individual sin, right? There's an old Baptist saying, this is more Southern Baptist than Northern, but I love it. Um, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do. I'm seeing some head nods. Someone has like heard this before. So strong focus on that individual piety. Um, he was skeptic as a youth, uh, but he had a conversion experience at 17. This is from a reminiscence that he gave in Cleveland. He came to believe that every Christian ought to, in some way or other, participate in the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that way, help redeem humanity. Um, his father sent him to Germany to be properly theologically trained, and then he finished his education at Rochester Theological Seminary. Um, very conservative uh, educational experience there, uh, very in that evangelical pietism, uh, strong emphasis on individual morality. And he wanted to be a missionary, but he was denied because he had written a paper on Bushnell's atonement theory, 
uh, which is kind of a moral influence theory, and they just weren't so sure about him on that basis alone. Um, and so he ended up pastoring Second German Baptist Church uh, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, mm -hmm. right? And this is really the big, my life is changed forever moment. Because he's essentially raised by a prof professor family. He's raised in a very protected, bubbled, middle-class family, stresses American values despite their German roots, and, and very proud of American democracy, um, and very much focused on personal piety. And this is also very much the Victorian era of morality, um, of a, a strong sense of um, being beyond you know, repute, right? Never, never have any inkling of personal sin that would be uh, visible. And now he goes to Second German Baptist Hell's Kitchen where um, there's uh, marriage records and other uh, roster records we have access to in his papers that tells us that most of his um, parishioners worked in the factories um, or worked even in piecemeal work. These were uh, working people who were uh, working basically 12, 14 hour days every day. They were living in overcrowded tenements where there hadn't been proper planning for ventilation or light or even uh, toilet facilities were very, you know, porta potty out the back that was not very well regulated or controlled. There was no rules for food safety yet at this time. In fact, it would be another 20 years um, before there's any regulations for any kind of food or, or medicine uh, safety. And there wasn't a whole lot of public lands or parks or places for recreation yet. Um, so he's looking at this situation and he um, just becomes very despondent. And he had no idea how to react, how to address any of this stuff because his, his college years had not prepared him for any of these questions. And particularly what got to him were the children's uh, funerals. He had to pastor so many funerals of children because uh, life expectancy was poor, and particularly for children, um, uh, disease, we think about the pandemic today, but if you were living in an overcrowded tenement, often with, you know, a family was lucky if a family of six parents and four children got two rooms total. And by rooms, I mean this floor would have been, this room that we're in right now would have been at least six to eight apartments, right? And, and we're talking six to sometimes 10 people in each of these like two room apartments, if you were lucky, uh, with no windows, <laughs> right? No, nothing, you were lucky to get any kind of outdoor uh, window space at all. So disease would rampage through these tenement um, homes. And if you're ever in New York City, there's a tenement house tour that you can really see what this would have looked like. But he's like, when I saw how men toiled all their life long, hard, toilsome lives, and at the end had almost nothing to show for it, right? No ability to save for old age, no ability um, to even pay for their own funerals. Um, how strong men begged for work and could not get it in the hard times. Um, we had no, there would be rampant work, lots of factory work, they would flood the market and then they would lay everybody off. That was a pretty constant cycle in this time period. Um, how little children died, oh the children's funerals, they gripped my heart. That was one of the things I always went away thinking about. Why did the children have to die? So he starts 
thinking more deeply about this and, and why was this. Uh, this incidentally is a picture. So Jacob Reese is a famous um, muckraking journalist who was pals with all these social gospel leaders. Uh, and he did a, a book of photography, How the Other Half Lives. And so this is one image of a flat that would have been in Rauschenbusch's uh, neighborhood. Um, incidentally, it was just him and his sister in one of these flats. So he actually still had a pretty nice middle class life here. So he spent several years thinking and developing his ideas. And then he and a, another Northern Baptist named Leighton Williams start a short-lived newspaper called For the Right. Uh, it ran October 1889 to March 1891. And it starts putting forward a lot of his ideas for reform, a lot of his ideas on how to help working people. This is still a middle class guy wanting to give advice to working class people. And most of his audience was just fellow pastors. <laughs> right? There's a reason this newspaper didn't do well or survive. It's accused of being very paternalistic. I would actually argue it's more maternalistic. There's a woman writer in here that is very condescending in her advice for how these working class um, women could make ends meet. A lot of her tips wouldn't have worked for them because they didn't even have the power to like bulk buy. Like some of the, the stuff we do to be thrifty is not possible if you're poor. Um, but it was striving to be a voice for working men. Uh, this is their kind of aspiration, reflecting its, its pages, the needs, the aspirations, the longings of the tens of thousands of wage earners who are sighing for better things and point out, if possible, not only the wrongs that men suffer, but the methods by which these wrongs may be removed. Um, so they're starting to address how do we, a lot of his stuff are like short stories of like, how do we get to the root of the problem, the crow's nest that is stopping up the whole whole stove, for example. Christina, is yeah. Is looking really at individual responsibility and choices versus like who owns the factory? Where yeah, yeah, yeah. Time? So this is an excellent question. And essentially, all of these folks, I trace this, avoid till it becomes um, untenable any kind of calls for legislation. They start with voluntary individualistic reform. They do call in here for like boycotts of um, factory stores or like clothing stores that are known to be sweatshops, right? But that's still more individual action. And only, and, and then they like call for um, uh, public parks. Right? And, and then it moves on from there. So one of the first national, and they mostly work on local civic reform. Rauschenbusch later in his life becomes famous for civic reform in Rochester, where he ends up in, and goes and he's a professor. But he's, he's interested in how do we as a community engage and shape our local community. So there's still really a fear of any kind of national or federal control. Things are best kept in the hands of, this is very conservative ideas, right? Um, uh, but one of the federal legislation that Rauschenbusch is eventually a part of is to ban child labor, for example. Right? That's where they're like, this is too big of a problem. Private trying to shame people into stopping child labor is not working. We need, we need better legislation. So it takes them a long time. It takes them 1908 before they're calling for any kind of national legislation. 
right? He's starting to write in 1889. So you can see it takes a long time. Um, he is influenced again by Morris and particularly Morris's idea of Christian socialism. Remember, I talked, Morris is the guy who's trying to offset the more radical democratic revolutions of the people, right? He's actually trying to calm that down. So his goal is to Christianize socialism and socialize Christianity is one of the things that uh, Morris talks about that then Rauschenbusch picks up. I have to note here, this is not Marxism, like at all. Like when we're talking Morris, Marx has not written anything yet, right? He's more influenced by several thinkers coming out of France, right, than he is by Marx, who doesn't exist yet. And uh, Rauschenbusch dies in 1918. He barely sees the Bolshevik Revolution happening, right? So he's not influenced by Marxism at all. Um, he does eventually read him, um, but he's more influenced by this guy. So in these pages of For the Right, he is starting to promote some ideas that we can call socialism in a very weak way, right? In a very, socialism is the good of the social body, the social politics. So they're advocating um, the idea, and they're not yet calling for any legislation here, they're calling for this to be voluntary, um, or for local city, um, for natural resources like oil or gas to be publicly owned. Um, for uh, transportation, for public transportation in the cities to be publicly owned. Uh, they're encouraging cooperative businesses. So one thing that people were doing is creating like cooperative food buys to bulk buy and then distribute. So they were encouraging that kind of thriftiness. Um, they were encouraging trade unions and they were encouraging insurance societies. So um, the, to plan for your funeral, you could buy a small amount of life insurance that then make sure your family could bury you, right? This was something that was developing in this time. Um, and they're encouraging city facilities, including roads, but mostly bridges and parks and libraries and galleries, right? They're wanting uh, city facilities that would provide recreation, that would move people up those hierarchy of needs. Um, they were against any kind of government takeover of industry. <laughs> they saw that as violating uh, democratic values and rights. They were against uh, atheism and attacks on Christianity. So they were very against a lot of the socialism of the working class that was rejecting faith, right? That was starting to pull from Marx and his idea that religion is the opium of the masses. Uh, they were against the materialism of their day. So um, the Gilded Age, as we call it, the, as we move into the 1880s, 1890s, it's called the Gilded Age because there was some very wealthy people and a veneer of, every, of, of like silver over everything, but it was rotten underneath, right? This is Mark Twain actually coined that, the Gilded Age. Um, but general quality of life was improving, right? Because access to consumer products was um, increasing and the price of consumer products was decreasing, um, which was fueling a just general materialism of want and disposable kind of consumerism. Um, they were very against the denigration of democratic rights or values, um, so forms of socialism that would take that away, they were protesting against. Um, and uh, they were very against forms of socialism that were seen to undermine the importance of, of family, right? Um, these are still very evangelical uh, men who are behind this. Um, 
In For the Right, he defines New Testament Christians um, as those who believe in the existence of God, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the unity of the human race. Upon the first, we base our hope of the world's future happiness. Upon the second, we rest our assurance of the ultimate victory over sin. And the third is the ground of our expectation that a day is coming when the brotherhood of man will no longer be a mere term on the lips of social reformers. Um, so you can see the orthodoxy here, right? Stressing the atonement, stressing God uh, as the unity of the human race. Um, and calling New Testament Christians, Rauschenbusch was doing something pretty typical of his age, of a very ecumenical look at kind of the shared uh, evangelical Protestantism of the day. And he included in this most major Protestant denominations. Uh, the Lutherans were outside the fold for him, and sometimes Episcopalians. Um, uh, but excluding Roman Catholics. One major thing about the social gospel is, is they were very uh, fearful of Roman Catholics as possibly threatening the democratic values of the day, in part because the church at large didn't believe in religious liberty at this time, right? The Roman Catholic Church, in fact, doesn't endorse religious liberty until Vatican II in the 1960s, right? And so that fueled a lot of the anti-Catholicism of this age. Um, but he's seen within America, and this is very true, most Protestant Americans would have um, latched onto the term evangelical at this time, right? It was a pretty widely perceived term, and this was pretty widely uh, what it was perceived to be. So um, in addition to For the Right, he forms Brotherhood of the Kingdom. This is more essentially a pastoral small group of like-minded Christians who are wrestling with these questions, who are studying these questions, who are doing like book studies, uh, but then they're also starting to do some advocacy uh, like fighting for public parks in New York City is one specific. Um, he, he takes a sabbatical to Germany in part because he gets a flu that leaves him mostly deaf uh, in um, particularly one ear, but where it wasn't just that he couldn't hear, it's that he had a constant ringing, rattling kind of pain and noise in one ear. And he wasn't sure how he could continue to pastor. And so he takes a sabbatical um, and he writes a book called Revolutionary Christianity that is never published. <laughs> um, but it's where he's working out a lot of his ideas. It's, it's actually published decades after his death in the 1960s. Um, a scholar named Max Stackerhouse finds it and republishes it. Um, ultimately, his deafness can't be cured. It is harming his ability to be a pastor, so he shifts to academia. He takes over the German Baptist Department, ran by his father uh, in 1897. And in 1902, he actually switched to the church history department. So now he's not just teaching fellow German Baptists, but he's teaching Baptists of all kinds of different stripes, which is widening his horizons. Um, and then uh, it is, uh, actually this should be 1907, that's a typo, my apologies. Uh, but Christianity and Social Crisis is his first big book. And again, he published it and went on a sabbatical and came home to becoming, being one of the most popular uh, theologians in the country. And he actually thought he would get fired <laughs> for what he publishes. But essentially he looks at all the industrial ills and he's like, Christianity is not doing a good job addressing these. But we could. Uh, and his book is the groundswell that really leads uh, to the um, Federal Council of Churches. So this is a, a big, broad, ecumenical Protestant movement. 
um, and their social creed that they put out in 1908. And it's mostly about labor rights, right, and how to, how to protect working men. Um, it is very influential. In 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, when he decides to run against Taft, who had been his VP, right, so Roosevelt comes into office um, because McKinley's assassinated, and then he wins one term of his own, and then he decides to step back, and Taft takes over. But then Roosevelt doesn't like what Taft is doing, and Roosevelt's like, I want to put my hat back in the ring. So he creates a third party, right? And he basically adopts the whole social creed of the churches in his third party, which forces Woodrow Wilson to adapt some of the stuff they're doing, like child labor laws, for instance. Um, and so it becomes hugely influential. Um, so we see 1908, uh, that's probably why I made this typo, as the pinnacle, the peak of the social gospel because then it gets consumed by World War I, right? And all the energies that they were doing for social reform gets consumed by World War I. Um, and then conservatives, who of course the fundamentalist uh, papers, the fundamentals, right? Here are the fundamentals of the faith we believe are being lost in this, um, start coming out in 1912. And so after everyone gets done with World War I, all the energy is exhausted and they start to break apart, these two, these two movements. I'm gonna pause there. So we've kind of gone through Rosh and Bush's life and I can talk more about his theology, but what do you all want to know? What questions do you have? My question is more, what draws you to him and what do you want us to take away for today? Like, I mean, there's a lot of questions about social justice right now. Yeah, so I would urge you to read it. <laughs> What drew me to him was, was actually an accident. I went to do my PhD, and I am hugely influenced by Richard Hughes, if any of you guys know that name. He's a, a major historian in our, in our tradition. Um, and I wanted to cover civil religion, which is how um, essentially ideas of secular ideas and sacred ideas mix together um, to form kind of a weird hybrid. And uh, civil religion can be very damaging if the secular ideas are dominating the faith ideas and you can't tell them apart and the faith ideas are just using to endorse the secular ideas. But it can actually be very positive if we flip it the other way and, and faith ideas are always challenging secular ideas and holding them to, to their highest ideals, right? So Nazi Germany, we see faith completely consumed by the civil religion. Martin Luther King, civil rights, we see faith prophetically um, uh, pointing to ideas like we're all created equal um, to advance and improve. Um, so that's what I studied. I went to, to my PhD program wanting to study that in a more contemporary context. And my supervisor pushed me uh, toward, well, hey, this late 19th century period might be ideal. And so my work actually looks at how they're sometimes getting lost in the civil religion. Um, they're getting lost in the anti-Catholicism of their day. They're getting lost in the Christian nationalism rhetoric of their day. Um, they're definitely what I would call culturally racist. Um, they are actually just caught up in the idea that Anglo-Saxon culture is supreme and best, and, and that goal is to raise up other races to be like the Anglo-Saxons and to melt everyone else into the Anglo-Saxon way of life. So all these guys, including Rosh and Bush, are buying into that. 
um, how their democratic ideals shape their Christianity sometimes in ways. Right? If you if you read him, you deduce like he he thinks um, that God would be would would be for democracy. Well, we don't actually think we have some verses I can point about. We have other verses that are like, well, no, right? God is a king, right? So that is what fascinated me. Um, but I do feel me reading all, like I've read everything Rauschenbusch has written, including some very deeply personal letters between him and his wife. Now that was a love match. Um, they had five children together. Um, and everything I've read really um, makes me love him and be convicted by how he saw the kingdom and how he worked for the kingdom. So if I can just some things I will leave you about his kingdom theology, right? Do it for Rogerster is one of the things. There, here's all the books that he um, has um, done. If you have to pick any, Christianity and the Social Crisis, and then Theology for the Social Gospel would be the two that I would most recommend. I've, I have read all of them. Um, here's all the national reforms. I even forgot I had a slide on this. Um, but if we get to his kingdom theology, I want to get to this. So his kingdom theology is really rooted in the Old Testament prophets. Um, he is deeply uh, diving in to their calls for justice, right? And again and again, it's the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. Um, he believes that Jesus really magnified the idea of kingdom and he goes really deep scripturally uh, into what Jesus said about the kingdom. Uh, but how he prompted, uh, promoted justice and mercy over any kind of ceremonial um, uh, religion. He believed the kingdom was an evolutionary process. And this is scriptural, but you can see where some Darwin is maybe infiltrating the language when you read it. Um, but scripture says we're to work like yeast through the dough, right? So, so he's still very, we transform individual hearts. Individual hearts transform other individual hearts. They combine together to start, you know, making a difference in Rochester, right, where they live in their, their home communities. Um, so it could never be installed by force. So Rauschenbusch, even though he was working for social justice, would be really critical of any kind of violent uh, protest or efforts to install. And he would really look, the means must be Christian, not just the end. Right, that would be very important to him. And, and he so respected the, the, the individual worth of assault. Let me tell you a quick story that illustrates this. This is one of my book chapters on it. Um, Roger Bush was really tight with John uh, D. Rockefeller, right? And Rockefeller, uh, of course, was uh, a captain of the industry or a robber baron, depending on your perspective. But he was one of the people that Teddy Roosevelt went after to bust up his trust, Standard Oil that was exposed as having done some really shady stuff uh, to make his fortune, uh, essentially um, uh, buying up uh, railroad access so that no other oil shippers could ship their oil, things like that. Um, uh, and some Christians, particularly Congregationalists, were attacking Rockefeller and saying that no churches should take his money because it was tainted, right? This was a big scandal. Um, around the time of the early 1900s. But Rauschenbusch was close friends with him. Rockefeller was a Northern Baptist. Rockefeller had helped fund uh, his church in Hell's Kitchen. Rockefeller helped him fund his additional education. 
Rockefeller actually helped his family get into first one home and then another. So like Rockefeller is the like uncle to Rasha Bush who says, here's a bright young pastor, his family's struggling financially, let me help him with a down payment on a home, right? So, so that he can bathe the floors and thrive. Um, so Rasha Bush had all these contacts with other very wealthy individuals and his works are painful to read if you're a wealthy individual. He never attacks them by name. He never directly um, tears any one person down. But he mailed his books to Rockefeller and says, maybe you want to read this, right? Um, very, very gentle. And one of the notes I read to someone else, I can't remember who it was, but another very wealthy person. You might get angry when you start reading these chapters, but keep going and I promise maybe you'll get a little less angry at me. And my hope is if you keep going to the end, you'll, you'll see I have some points that maybe then we can discuss, right? He's very much, I invite you. So rather than um, calling people out, he's calling people in in his work, very uh, generously. Um, he stressed that the kingdom is international and it's to serve God and humanity. So even though he himself believes that God has a special mission for America, he is still pushing toward the, in, the uh, international kingdom. Uh, and in World War I, which of course has Germany against the US, uh, eventually he actually becomes more radically pacifist and sees some of the errors of nationalism in the year before he dies. Um, the church's main mission is to work for the kingdom, but it has to go beyond the church. Um, he was really, uh, kind of critical of the way churches could become social clubs um, and not really care about social reform. And as we've stressed already, for him the kingdom was both uh, future and present. It was never something, he always holds a really tight tension, that this is supernatural in origin. It's gonna take individual regeneration to do. Um, we can still make society easier to encourage that re individual regeneration, right? If we improve the tenement housing, people will be able to pursue discipleship, right? So he still believed that those had to go together. I call it the chicken and egg problem of the social gospel, which comes first, individual regeneration, social transformation. And Rauschenbusch said, yes, right? Both together. Um, but stress, the kingdom is not something that humans could do. It's always gonna be a work of God. I'll leave you there. We're out of time, but if you have other questions, you can say and ask me more. <laughs>